0: Hey, y'all, and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders, and I'll be your host today, and I'm very excited to be joined by a dear friend, Mr. Mike Poor. If you don't know Mike, he's most well-known probably for teaching the SAN Security 503 course, which deals in all things intrusion detection and network security monitoring. It's a course I was really fortunate to take uh, several years ago, uh, and it had a real impact on me, not so much just the material, but really Mike's teaching style and his passion for what he does, which is a really neat thing. Now, Mike and I are going to talk about a lot of great stuff today. He has a really interesting background growing up in Brazil, uh, still getting interested in computers and. Uh, progressing throughout his career eventually to a career of teaching so we talk about growing up in brazil we talk about how he got into teaching for Sands institute we also talk about the founding of inguardians which is actually where i worked with mike at his company there and the real family environment he's worked to instill amongst the people he works uh, with at guardians that still really persist even after you leave i know i've experienced that i still feel like family with mike and many of those guys Uh, still now several years after the fact. So a really cool uh, discussion with Mike today. I hope you enjoy it. Listen, if you like what you have to hear, make sure you tweet Mike and let him know. You can find him on Twitter at Mike underscore poor. And of course, I always love to hear your feedback as well. You can find me at Chris Sanders 88. That's enough yapping for me. Let's get on over to Mike. Mike,
1: how are you, brother? Fantastic. great to hear your voice.
0: Ah, great to hear yours too. Thank you for, for making time for us here and I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I think you have a great story. I think a lot of people are really interested to hear it. but before we get going, I mean you, you're doing the in Guardians thing now. obviously that's you know one of the ways I know you uh, I was working for, for you and working with you at in, in Guardians for quite a while. Uh, just to kind of set the stage for those folks who maybe don't know you who are listening tell us a little bit maybe about in Guardians and kind of what your role is there.
1: Well, thank you. I'm a founder and managing partner of Wingardians. Uh, We're a small company that focuses on high-end information security consulting. Uh, We kind of divide our uh, time between doing red team penetration tests and incident response uh, for the most part. Uh, So I I help manage uh, the company. Uh, We have 16 employees plus about 20 contractors uh, that we keep really busy. Wonderful.
0: And, of course, recently retired SANS instructor. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my last SANS conference uh, after uh, 15 years of teaching on the road uh, was in December uh, of 2016. Uh, so I'm kind of uh, just getting adjusted to to not having to pack my bag and leave every three weeks, uh, wow. which is uh, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I bet. That's a that's a a big shift for sure. Well, it's well, I want to I want to work up to this point and talk about kind of how we got here, uh, how you got here and a little bit about your background. And, you know, one of the things I find most interesting about you, and I guess, you know, I I didn't know this about you until I I took a course with you and that you you didn't grow up in the United States. You grew up overseas or or, or down south in uh, in Brazil um so that's that's different and a lot of people listening to this are, are probably going to be in the u.s and they probably don't have a grasp of what it's like growing up in brazil as a matter of fact the, the only thing most people listening probably know about brazil is what they saw in the olympics last year which is probably not the best in a to- a total representation of, of maybe your childhood so i guess if you will tell me a little bit about what it's like for for young mike poor growing up in brazil and and what's you know things that stick out to you that are dramatically different from growing up uh you know someone might in the united states
1: Well, it it was a a wonderful and fascinating childhood. Um, You know, it it was the only one I knew of. uh, But, uh, you know, as I've lived my life, I've grown to really appreciate having a a different perspective growing up there. Uh, So my parents are both American uh, and met down there. My mother went down to Brazil with the U.S. Foreign Service. And um, so they met down there in the late 60s. uh, and I was born in the 70s and um so so i was born in rio and, and raised in sao paulo so sao paulo is one of uh the top three or four lar- third or fourth largest city in the world uh with 25 to 30 million people depending on the day um you know it's grown so much uh you know in my lifetime um and um but you know it it, it was a a spectacular childhood despite growing up uh in a military dictatorship uh, the, that ran in Brazil from 64 to 84. Uh, we saw the, the birth of free elections in Brazil, uh, in 84, um, you know, with, with direct, uh, democratic elections, which is fascinating. Uh, and, and I think that for me, the, the biggest thing was just to grow up with that different perspective. You, you'd walk down to the corner newsstand, you know, first you had newsstands down the corner, uh, but you'd walk to the, the corner newsstand and you'd have, News and magazines from around the world. You'd have a uh, a Parismatch uh, magazine or a Der Spiegel from Germany, or you'd have uh, the Times or, or 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 the New York Times or, or otherwise photo magazines from Russia or from the United States, and uh, so so it was it was an interesting cultural experience to to be able to see a bunch of what the world had to offer.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's awesome. So, what was Growing up in school like there, and obviously you you only had one childhood, so you only got to experience what it was like for you. But obviously, I mean, you have a son, and so you've seen a little bit about school in the U.S. and you've lived here for so long. You kind of have an understanding of how that works. What were the big differences in, in school in Brazil versus school here now?
1: Uh, well, you know, two different things. One, I, I went to uh, an American Catholic school in Brazil, so I was very fortunate uh, in that uh, and privileged uh, to to go to, to, to a school that, you know, cost quite a bit of money to go to. And uh, they had, you know, excellent educators that had, you know, quite a lot of, of teaching experience and academic experience. And, uh, you know, so, so I was very fortunate that way. Uh, they also uh, worked hard, uh, you know, this was a long time ago, uh, but uh, they worked hard to, to bring technology and uh, to the schools. So, you know, we had uh, at the time, kind of the best of the standards, uh, you know, first beginning with, uh, you know, like the TRS-80s and then uh, we had uh, Apple IIEs uh, and, uh, in the computer lab and so forth. Uh, but that was another thing that really, I think, shaped some of my early days hacking away on bits and stuff was that Brazil had an enormously restrictive technology import tariff. So, uh essentially if you wanted to import anything technology wise, so a, a computer, a, um, video game, uh, anything that was technology related, you would have to pay a 300% import tax. So wow. if you had a thousand, yep. If you had a thousand dollar computer, uh, you know, which at the time, uh, something like, a, an Apple IIe, uh, with a monitor and, you know, some, some memory, uh, you know, would have run roughly $2,000. And, uh, you, they they would have forced you to pay a six thousand dollar import importation tariff, uh, and what they were trying to do was protect local technology business. But th- what they were doing was just stifling everything. Wow. Uh, so so it, in part, it it gave rise to the need essentially to circumvent uh, certain security practices. Uh, you know, back in these days, this is uh, early eighties they, uh, uh, software companies would use, um, uh, mechanisms for copy protection and other things that, um, we learned to circumvent, uh, and, you know, that's probably not a great thing to admit. Uh, <laughs> well, statute think, of limitations, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you know, for, for us, you know, as a 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old that wanted to play a video game or wanted to, uh, to code you know, in, in, in Pascal uh, or, or, or whatever, uh, again, something that you would never understand. Uh, <laughs> why would somebody want to do that, right? <laughs> um, you needed the software, and, and you couldn't download that software. Uh, you had to have the disks, for example. And uh, so uh, back in those days, uh, software um, vendors would mark certain sectors on the disk as bad sectors. Uh, and when the program would run, it would check the disk to see if those sectors were marked as bad. And if they were, that was essentially the copy protection, and, and the program would run. And if not, it would display a, a horrible message with crossbones saying that they were turning you over to the FBI or something. And um, but but that kind of drove a, 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 a spirit of innovation or a spirit of of creativity in ways to to. Modify software and and to look at you know the, the the fact that the rules surrounding software, not the laws, but the rules surrounding software, uh, were not steadfast and uh, and, and that you can manipulate.
0: Right, and I guess that's kind of the thing that was going on in a lot of places in the world. Whereas you know ne- you know before hacking became a term that was associated with by some people with with bad things and breaking laws, it was basically just doing the things you were doing. You know, well, look, looking at this stuff and, and basically just trying to do what you could to learn, right?
1: Exactly. And, and, and you know, I, I just want to, you know, make it clear that um, while breaking copy protection is breaking laws, uh, the uh, I was never profiting from it, nor was I, you know, giving it out to, you know, lots of people. It was literally so that I could have a copy of that software. Uh, and I'm not justifying it. I'm just, you know, putting some parameters around it.
0: Well, no, and, um, and that makes know, sense. And, and it was really, it was really for for a pursuit of of to some degree something greater. When you talk about you know learning to program in Pascal and things like that, I mean you're mm-hmm. you're trying to you have a hungry mind, I guess, and you were trying to feed it.
1: Yeah, well, it, and it was funny because what we had uh, on, uh, I think it was in ninth grade, um, I took uh, IB Pascal, so kind of like an advanced computer programming at the time. Uh, And uh, for the semester project, we ported uh, Drug Wars, which was a uh, cult game that I believe originally uh, originated on the TI calculator. Yeah, uh, I remember that. I remember having Drug Wars on my Mm TI-83. So we ported that to Pascal uh, as uh, me and and, uh, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Willem Molinar. Uh, uh, related to Bram Monar, uh, who wrote uh, "Vi Improved," but uh, the um, uh, we turned that in for our uh, final semester project, uh, thinking that we would probably get dogs pretty hard because of the topic. Uh, but uh, Mr. Rodionov, uh, who was our our, our, our teacher, uh, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, he, uh, he he saw through the the veneer of of, of kind of craziness and and, and other things and. Uh, and looked at the code and and graded us based on the code, which is cool.
0: Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So it sounds like maybe he served – or at least you had the opportunity to to learn programming in high school, which was probably a pretty cool thing, You know, not just because uh, of where you were in the school that you were able to to go to, but also that that wasn't happening in a lot of places in the world at the time maybe, Um, bigger cities, things like that. I mean – were you? What was it like as far as mentorship and and like the teachers? It sounds like you had at least one teacher who was really kind of supportive of that and, and helped you learn things. Was that was he? Was that kind of an isolated case, or were you able to find other mentors at that level at that time?
1: It it was primarily uh, a, a Vlad, uh, you know, fr- from a, a teacher perspective uh, in the traditional teacher role. Uh, he uh, was a Russian mathematician, uh, you know, certainly college level professor that got stuck teaching. You know, high school math and programming uh, down in Brazil, and and uh, he, um, you know, I, I remember I, I got a a horizontal programmable TI calculator, and he had said that we could use calculators on our final exam, uh, and I thought to myself like that's 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 funny, you know, I'm I mean, gonna totally like ace this, you know, I spent four or five days programming all the algorithms and everything else into the calculator, so all I had to do was you know put in X, Y, and N and whatever it might have been. And, um, and I aced the exam. And after that, you know, kind of in, in a not so cool move, I, I decided to tell Vlad Mr. Rodionov that, um, you know, he probably shouldn't allow calculators because, you know, now I'm going to ruin it for everybody else. Right. Uh, because I spent, you know, a couple of days programming all the algorithms in and, you know, I aced the exam uh, and he kind of laughed and tapped me on the shoulder. And I'm like, what? And, and he said, well, it, it's about when to use you know, knowing when to use the algorithms, not knowing the algorithms uh, that's important. Uh, and, uh, and that he thought that it was awesome that I spent a couple days programming all the algorithms into the calculator so that I could use them. Uh, you know, so so, you know, it, it, it was a little small moments that kind of taught me that learning was able to be different yeah that you could ex- that you could experience learning and be active in learning, not just absorb learning from a book or from a, a teacher or instructor
0: yeah, that's that's awesome. so so did you know at this point in your life that you wanted to to pursue technology in any way or was it just kind of a sad
1: thing at that point? I had no idea I had absolutely no I, I really enjoyed technology I enjoyed gaming I enjoyed um, uh, that whole aspect of things my uh, my parents managed to, uh, uh, let's say, import uh, a, an Apple IIe for me. Uh, and uh, it had a, a Haze modem. <coughs> and, you know, this thing was awesome. I mean, the, the Apple IIe uh, had uh, old ribbon expansion cards and stuff like that. I mean, it, it was an awesome hacker machine. And um, the Hayes modem was a really cool concept, but... Phone calls in Brazil were very expensive. To have a phone line in the house ran between five and $10,000 to buy a phone line, you know, for them to connect your wow. house to the, to the phone, right? Uh, and um, the, uh, and it, it was a very popular thing, maybe even still is in Brazil, um, that you would rent your landline. Um, and, and you wouldn't necessarily rent your landline from the phone company. You, you might rent your landline from some dude that owns that number. Um, and uh, the uh, so and, and phone calls, especially long distance phone calls, were very expensive. Uh, but that modem gave me access to to bulletin board systems that you know kind of connected me to knowledge before people. Um, you know, meaning that it, it allowed you to go through and access a file system that had tons of different types of files on them. Uh, and uh, you know, whether it was the anarchist cookbook or whether it was uh, you know kind of Uh, an instruction on how to do an ASCII DOS, uh, you know, or or, or whatever it might have been. It it was the beginning of the knowledge base uh, that, you know, that is the Internet today. So I I think that was kind of the coolest early technology thing for me.
0: Yeah, I guess that's when kind of the fire hose opened and you had access to all this new information. And and that's probably that's probably a big, significant moment in your life. Totally. Yeah. So so at what point then did you ultimately decide or, or start moving towards, you know, my job for the future is going to be technology, maybe not even information security, but just computers in general?
1: Uh, It wasn't until many, many years in the future. uh, So I I spent uh, early days uh, working as a photographer. Uh, So I I worked uh, both uh, for uh, UPI for a short while uh, up here in the U.S. Uh, It's a syndicated news uh, organization, Uh, so covering events in Washington and other places uh, as a stringer. Uh, and um, ended up uh, getting represented by contact press images um, for a short period of time. They uh, have um, a lot of uh, socially conscious photography, Uh, so I did a lot of work in uh, black-and-white documentary photography, uh, working with uh, rural populations, uh, Bolivia, Mexico, uh, and uh, the street populations in large urban environments. Uh, so that, that, that was kind of my early career. And I I realized after a while that, uh, if I kept taking pictures of homeless people that someday I I would die and maybe someday after I died, they would recognize me as a, as a good documentarian or something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that wasn't enough to put food on the table and take care of my family. Uh, so, so, uh, when I came back to the U S in 96, uh, I went to go work for a company uh, in Baltimore uh, that did automated ID uh, reselling and uh, installations. Uh, so they, they became Barcoding.com, uh, which is one of the largest uh, automated ID ho- houses in the world. They uh, At the time, we were just four people out of an apartment. And um, it, it really kind of opened my eyes business-wise to how... The internet and how technology was going to uh, level the playing field isn't necessarily uh, the right term, but maybe leveling out the the barrier to entry onto the playing field uh, and, and the playing field being business uh, and otherwise. Uh, and and what I mean by that was we are four people, you know, four people in an apartment, uh, essentially doing between five to seven million dollars in sales uh and you know we we would essentially sell an order to a customer and then make arrangements to purchase that equipment to sell to that customer uh and make money off of the sale uh and then uh work with uh existing customers to implement that technology so this is uh barcoding uh equipment uh, uh RF scanners so that Forklifts can drive down through warehouses, for example, and take inventory and that type of stuff. Uh, and uh, and it was really fascinating, uh, you know, because it was, you know, almost as if you know technology was that lever uh, that would allow, you know, two friends uh, and two employees uh, to do that. Um, you know, one of the business owners would always, you know, he had a big sign on his whiteboard and it was create a sense of urgency. And, and oftentimes, even if we were slow, um, you know, he would pick up the phone and, and um, you know, answer the phone, ask the person very clearly if, if they could hold on for a moment. Uh, and, you know, if they say yes, they would put them on hold for a moment, uh, take about 30 seconds, and then answer the phone. Uh, and, uh, you know, thanks to hold and everything else, uh, just finishing up an order uh, and, and so forth. And, and it, it was just bizarre to watch because it literally did create that sense of urgency and that sense of feeding frenzy, and it was just interesting. Uh, so I, I learned a lot. I was um, twenty six at the time or so.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. So how did you know? So you're you're doing that, and you're kind of you mentioned you're getting this new perspective on technology. And I love the way you put it that kind of leveled out the barrier to entry, and that you didn't. I guess what you're saying is you didn't have to be. You know, bigwig corporate guy to get into business, you could be random guys in an apartment somewhere.
1: Exactly, and and I guess, and and that kind of set
0: the model for the way it is still today to some degree.
1: Exactly, and and having a technology, you know, front, uh, you know, whether it's a storefront or or or, or a a business front to your services, for example, and and by front I don't mean a front company, I mean you know just a a face uh, uh, that you you no longer had to have uh, a, a massive amount of. Uh, kind of overhead and logistics to support starting a business. Yeah. So it's pretty cool.
0: I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me, uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. saved me a ton of time. It provides a lot of great analysis features, too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, It also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature, and I had a chance to play with it recently, and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe, who are good friends of mine, and you can learn more about it by going to CloudShark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code podcast. Now let's get back to Mike. When I when I think you know about your story and what I know of it, I know you know at some point you kind of get into teaching. At some point you kind of get into security. Uh, I know yep. you were involved with Sourcefire for a while. Wh- which came first? Was it Sourcefire or Sands that came first for you?
1: Uh, SANS. So so w- when I was working for for this company in Baltimore, uh, one of our customers got hacked. And, uh, and this was a customer that we had done implementation work on. So we had, we had installed a logistics system for them. Uh, the way that they found out that they got hacked was they um, had a driver show up at what was supposed to be a big box store to deliver a bunch of electronics goods. And it turned out to be mm, the projects. And the driver called back to, to base and said, hey, this is not the right address. Something's wrong here. They checked the manifest, they checked, you know, the, the, the system, it said, that address, you know, go ahead and deliver. And the, the driver refused to deliver. He, uh, and these were the days before camera phones were ubiquitous and so forth. And uh, the, uh, he didn't have his Trio with him or something. And uh, <laughs> I, should, I should probably, this is before Trio. And uh, he, um, he went back to base uh, and explained, you know, where he was and explained on the map and everything else. And, uh, and they called us because they figured, you know, hey, you know, something messed up with the software. And uh, when we pulled the logs in the software, you know, we saw that uh, there were 17 other address changes that had been made uh, to different customers or to different shipping uh, uh, manifests. And uh, they called in the FBI and the FBI came in and found a group that was essentially doing a, a Robin Hood kind of thing where they were redirecting things from big box stores to the projects uh, as uh, their little way of kind of hacking.
0: Well, and I guess the good, the good part of that is you had logs, which is more than a lot of yeah. people would say at that time. So, so good on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and th- this literally was the application uh, that we installed. It wasn't the application that we made. Um, you know, so I, you know, we can't take too much credit for that, but we did, we did know that there were, we didn't know that there were logs and we checked We checked those log entries and, uh, and mainly because all of these systems for logistics have to have uh, transactional recording, uh, and uh, so that they can, you know, do, you know, periodic auditing and, and everything else of all their shipping and and, and so forth. Um, so 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 that 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 was definitely very fortunate, and uh, it, it kind of got me back in. Uh, I was already, you know, back in, in computers. Um, I worked in the north of Brazil before coming to. The the U.S. for a company doing construction, uh, and I had built uh, a uh, a CAD based application that would uh, essentially spit out the materials that we would need for construction for uh, x amount of square meters of the the different things we were building, um, and uh, so so technology was still a part of my life, but it, it, and I was using it at that point already uh, for work. Uh, but uh, but it wasn't security until until that particular incident. Uh, then I uh, came to Sands in 2000, uh, and um, I was uh, with uh, my really good friend and business partner Jimmy Alderson, who you know well. Uh, and uh, we we drove into Sands in Baltimore, and uh, we're getting out of the car, and this other guy is getting out of his I think VW Passat or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and GB says, Hey, Marty. Uh, and it was Marty Resch, uh, author of snort. Uh, and I had already corresponded with him a few times and I said, Hey, Marty. And, uh, you know, uh, I-, I think we both quipped about, you know, you're shorter in person or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so that was kind of the first time I met Marty, the first time I went to Sands. Uh, and at the end of that, uh, week, uh, I, I took security essentials at Sands, uh, at the time and uh, which is kind of their foundational course um, I had already been been doing a, a, a bunch of things but uh, I, I really had skipped over in my self teaching uh, and learning I had skipped over things that were either boring or hard um, and, and at the time primarily it was policy and crypto uh, and uh, you know policy was boring and crypto was hard uh, the, uh, so I, I just kind of stayed away from it as, as much as possible. Uh, and uh, So so that was a great foundational class for me. Um, at the time, Security Essentials was a three-day class. It's now a six-day class. And um, so I, I, I got to have uh, Stephen Northcutt and Eric Cole and Dr. Jesper Johansson as my instructors for one wow. each day. Uh, so they were awesome. Uh, Jesper went on to work at Microsoft. At the time, he was at, I want to say, Boston university or boston college one of those uh the um but uh, some university in new england let's say and um at the end of the class i was walking I, I had told jesper and a few other folks that i thought there was a like a party or you know kind of end of the conference party or something like that so we went looking for the party walked into the other tower and steven was sitting in the lobby and uh, he says, "Well, I don't know about a party, but we could go up to the top of the, you know, top of the Hilton, I believe, in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, there's a bar up there. We could sit down, have a drink, Talks. So uh, while the other three guys and Jesper sat around Jesper's laptop and were hacking on this newfangled thing called VMware, uh, the uh, and mainly that it was a very new thing that you could install VMware on a laptop at the time. Wow, yeah." And so they were kind of hacking one machine from another machine and doing all that stuff. And I said, I'm going to sit down and talk to this amazing information warrior uh, and kind of just get to know him. And uh, so, so we sat there for about an hour and talked about Brazil and hackers and a bunch of stuff that I'd been working on. And uh, kind of at the end of the, at the, end of the conversation, I told him that, uh, you know, I'd kind of cut my teeth on intrusion detection and I'd love to take the class. Uh, but I couldn't afford it. And he uh, he told me to send an email to uh, uh, to Zoe, uh, who uh, at the time uh, kind of was one of the top directors at Sands. And uh, I sent her an email with the verbiage that he had told me to put in the email. And I got nothing back. Uh, so about a week later, I I, I sent Stephen an email uh, and uh, I said, Hey, uh, I haven't heard back from Zoe, and and literally like. Minutes after I pressed send, the phone rang. And it was Zoe. Uh, it was just magic. I don't know how that happened, uh, but uh, they they asked me to come in and help um, with the IDS class. Essentially, be a proctor in the class, uh, get paid, uh, which was awesome, uh, and uh, and and help out in the class. And then that uh, time period, uh, Marty was uh, Marty's wife. Uh, was expecting their first child. And uh, on the day that Marty was supposed to teach, the snort day, uh, Marty's wife uh, went into labor and he did uh, obviously couldn't come in to teach. Um, So Judy brought in a friend, uh, Judy Novak, uh, my guru and mentor, uh, Judy. We'll talk about uh, Judy in a bit. Uh, She brought in a friend of hers uh, to teach the class. But everybody in the class was expecting Marty. So... No matter who might have walked in instead of Marty, uh, it wasn't Marty. Uh, so so the, the day didn't go so well. Uh, I ended up hel- helping out a lot. Uh, Sands heard about it, and at the end of the conference asked me if I wanted to come down uh, to uh, Sands South Beach in Florida uh, to uh, do a trial day and, and teach the north day.
0: Wow, and this was from your first time attending the class. You then got asked to try out for teaching it.
1: Correct. That's, that's amazing.
0: Uh, now have you ever done, had you ever done any type of teaching like that before at
1: that point? No, sir. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and honestly, uh, until that moment. And in fact, until after, you know, maybe until now, I don't know. I, I never had any real desire to do public speaking and to do teaching and other things. I still stutter occasionally. I, especially when I get tired. Um, just never really thought of it as a career, much less, you know, a, a successful one. Yeah. Uh, wow. But, but, you know, I, I think, you know, Stephen, you know, two of my biggest mentors, uh, Steven Northcutt and, and Judy Novak, um, you know, just were, uh, not, not only influential in my career, they, 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 they were in my career in, in information security. Uh, but, uh, they, they have a, a, a an innate talent, especially Steven in identifying talent in people, even if they don't necessarily know that they have that talent. Um, and, and, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, it it, it was, it was a blessing. Uh, you know, so uh, I went down there and I, and I taught my one day and, uh, I got an email after that from Steven, uh, asking me to come to a national conference in Monterey in three weeks. And, Teach day one of the IDS class, and if I did well, I could secure a faculty position at Sam's. And uh, so I said, "Okay," and I went out there. And uh, so this was at uh, in Monterey, California. And I got there the night before, and went out to dinner. Uh, Stephen invited me to go out to dinner with them, and you know, at the table were these these giants. Right, of our industry right you know there's Ed Scotus and Eric Cole and Hal Pomeranz and uh, you know just just amazing people uh, sitting around that dinner table and 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 here I was just kind of trying to be quiet you know realizing that you know my open BSD t-shirt was probably underdressed for the occasion <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, so so I went back to my room uh, and I and I opened up the the day one book and and uh, Day one, regardless of the iteration, day one of the IDS class has always been a beast. Um, At the time, even much more so uh, than it is now. But we never kind of danced around. Uh, We always just dove right into packets, dove right into doing as opposed to, you know, let's spend the first day getting to know each other and we'll sing a nursery rhyme about packets. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, it's much more about, you know, let's look at the bits and bytes and see how this stuff works. So uh, I, I, around 11.15, I remember thinking to myself, if you don't know it now, you're not going to know it by 3 a.m., and you might as well try to get some sleep. So I go to sleep, and, and you know, this is probably t- you know, TMI, but I don't have much dream recall. But I, I go to sleep, and I wake up freaking out because in my dream— I'm standing there getting ready uh, you know at the podium getting ready to teach my first day of class at Sands or you know at the national conference and I can't boot my laptop now at the time the uh, I, I was presenting on Linux uh, I was using um, this was before crossover Office so I must have been using star Office so Sun star office and I probably spent four or five days converting the slides so they looked halfway decent in Sunstar office. (coughs) So uh, I'm trying to boot my laptop. My laptop isn't booting. My laptop isn't booting. And finally, it's almost 9 o'clock, and and, and I feel Stephen tap me on the shoulder, and he says, look, I'll start the class off. Why don't you go outside and get your laptop all sorted out, come in on morning break, and you can take over from there. And I go out, you know, this is my dream, right? I go out and like I sit down on the bench and I wake up in the middle of the dream freaking out. Uh, And and I realize, okay, it's a dream. I got to go back to sleep. I go back to sleep and I fall right back into the same dream out there on the bench. So I've got my laptop booted up. It's working. Everything is great. I, of course, fall asleep on the bench and I miss my next cue to go in after morning break. Uh, so this happens like two or three more times, total groundhog daydream. And finally, at, at around 5.30 in the morning, you know, I said, you know what? The heck with it. Um, you know, I'm not going to get any more sleep this way anyway. I've got to go find some caffeine uh, and we'll just get this over with. And I'll, I'll get on an airplane and I never have to do this again. Uh, and uh, I, I went into class and I went in there early. Uh, Stephen had come by and said and asked me how I felt about the day. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I feel great. is awesome. You know, I've got everything. Uh, the only part that I'm a little bit unsure on is the IPsec section. Uh, and, and I said, you know, to be honest, I know the material, right? I know the protocol, but I've never deployed IPsec in an enterprise environment. right? I, I, I just don't have that experience. Um, and, and they said, okay, cool. We'll stop by later. And Jason Fossman isn't doing anything later. And if you need him to take over that section, he can. Uh, so I went into teaching I had 170 students in class. And, you know, honestly, I have no idea where the verbiage came from. The only thing that, the, that I can describe it is channeling, right? You, you know, you're essentially kind of focusing that knowledge and, and uh, the material and the slides and everything kind of comes together. And, and it just kind of flows. Yeah. And the uh, and and just to finish up that one, um, at the end of the day, Steven comes into class. And, and this is like, you know, Yoda comes into class when you're testing for your final belt or whatever. And, and you know, literally all of my thoughts, there aren't many anyway, disappear from my mind. Uh, I, words disappear. I'm just completely at a blank. Stephen Northcutt is in the room. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, expletive, expletive, expletive. There's words on the slide, Mike. And and, and literally, I remember, like, words on the slide. Read the words. Got it. Laser pointer, words. And I started up again. And Stephen says to this day that he, he didn't notice any break at all or, or, or whatever. So, uh, and at the end of the day, we went into the... Uh, the the staff office and they tallied 160 odd, uh evaluations and uh I scored very well and they offered me a job
0: That's amazing. So so you were clearly I mean whether whether it was conscious or subconscious nervousness you were very nervous then and and you know 15 years later do you get nervous at all anymore or is that just at some point how long did it take for that to go away if it went away
1: uh, well, I, I think that it's still there uh, in in some ways, right? So let me explain. Uh, about six years ago, I started playing ukulele. Uh, and uh, I started taking it with me on the road when I'd travel to Sands uh, and otherwise. And um, it, part therapy, meditation, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and I don't have any musical talent, or I don't see myself as having any musical talent. Uh, and I could I would sit down, and I would only play the ukulele for my students at the end of the class, on day six, at the end of the week, after the last evaluation had been turned in. Then I'd play. Uh, the uh, and, uh, and at first, when I'd play, I'd be so nervous. I, I mean, just Hands shaking and kind of freaking out. Uh, we started doing occasional open mic nights at Sands, where instructors and students and so forth would get together and, and jam. Uh, lots of fun. Same thing, like freaking out, butterflies, and everything else. And and part of it was interesting to me because it was the same exact audience that I had been, you know, grandiose in front of, you know, just an hour before. Uh, and and here I am, you know, kind of timid and nervous and and, and freaking out uh, because the expertise has shifted, right? Uh, you know, they're they're no longer here listening to to Mike talk about packets or Mike talking about InfoSec. They're they're here listening to to Mike mess up on the ukulele. So it's almost uh, like
0: at this point you've kind of you've kind of gotten the other stuff to where you're not nervous about it. So you've almost pushed the envelope and pushed yourself into an area where you're less comfortable, which has kind of brought some of that back up, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, kind of it's, it's learning and getting yourself, you know, into a different, um, a different mindset. I was, I was listening recently to, uh, a book and it's written by, uh, uh, I'll have to look up the guy's last name. Uh, his first name is josh the the um he was the subject of the movie looking for bobby fisher uh so he was a, a child chess prodigy um just absolutely amazing and uh this book is the art of learning and uh it goes into kind of his approach to learning and he got so kind of fed up with chess not because of the game. He still, you know, loves the game, loves the strategy, loves playing the game and everything else, but there was such almost a cult following around him and, and the celebrity and all this other kind of stuff. So he he was always treated as the master and never as the student. And he went to go learn Tai Chi. Uh and instantly he was put in his place instantly he was a student instantly he was the person who knew nothing and that joy of learning something you know so grand and so vast to dive into um you know was really passionate so i uh, highly recommend uh, checking out that uh, the book or the audiobook that uh, yeah. i'm listening to right that, now that it sounds
0: is. right down my alley i I'll,
1: I'll make it a point
0: to do that I want to quickly tell you about another one of our sponsors, uh, which is Squirrel. And Squirrel is a tailor made threat hunting platform designed to aid security analysts in finding threats that other tools miss and enable organizations to investigate threats faster with fewer resources. They make this possible by fusing data sources into a graph exploration environment that allows analysts to easily pivot through diverse data sets using linked data analysis. And I can tell you personally, I'm a big fan of this approach. I've advocated graph-based thinking for quite a while. As opposed to detecting single anomalous events or users, Squirrel's investigations supporting security analytics are focused on detecting the tactics, techniques, and procedures of cyber adversaries. Now, one more cool thing I love about Squirrel is that they've pioneered some great thought leadership and a lot of content on threat hunting in the community. They produce some really great blog posts I like reading, and they're getting ready to release a new Threat Hunting Academy lecture series. I'm actually going to be recording one of these lectures for them soon, so make sure you check that out. You can learn more about threat hunting and the Squirrel product at squirrel.com. That's S-Q-R-R-L.com. Make sure you tell them that you learned about their product from me on the Source Code podcast. Now, let's get back to Mike. Uh, So let's talk a little bit. I want to kind of at some point talk a little bit about, you know, lessons learned on a career at Sands. But before we do that, I'd like to learn a little bit, I mean, about in Guardians and and kind of what led you to want to start in Guardians. And and I'll say before we start, you know, and and I don't know if I told you this story or not, but, you know, you know this, but people listening may not that I met you because I took your class. And that's probably how you met a lot of people in this field. And I remember distinctly, I, I was the annoying kid who sits in the front row of class and asked too many questions. You know, everyone has one. Um, and I was that kid. And uh, you know, I remember at some point you handed out some business cards and I don't know if I asked for one or you just gave them out or, or what have you, but you gave me your in guardians business card. And I was so enamored by the class. I'd already been into into packets, but this really took it to a new level for me. And, and I was just amazed at what I'd learned. And I had that whole Sands Hose experience. And I looked at that card and I'm like, and first of all, it's a pretty epic looking business card. And you guys still have those and they're awesome. But I was looking at it and I'm like, man, this is this is it right here. Like if, if, if I'm ever anywhere close to this, I've made it. And I still have that business card. I have it somewhere here. I kept it, the, awesome. the, the original one you gave me. And of course... It kind of came full circle several years later when I had the opportunity to work uh, with you at in Guardians, and that was kind of the culmination of a lot of things for me, and it meant a lot to me personally. So in Guardians was this thing I, I really put up on a pedestal, and, and certainly meeting all the folks who were involved, it lived up to it in every way. Um, so Guardians was a very important part of my life, so I'm, I'm really interested to learn, and I think the, the listeners here will be interested to learn a little bit about, you know, a little bit of the background, and I know it's, it, that's probably a super long story, but I guess convince the version of like why you decided to start in Guardians and, and what was involved in that decision.
1: Absolutely. So uh, it, it really started as seven friends on a phone call on January 1st, 2003. Uh, and uh, a bunch of us had worked together, either at SANS or otherwise. Uh, and we had all had our businesses or our jobs working in information security. Uh, so, you know, this was uh, uh, myself, uh, Bob Hillary, Jimmy Alderson, Jay Beal, Ed Skotis, uh Eric Cole, uh, and David Rhodes. Uh, so David Rhodes uh, of Maven Security. Uh, he So we, we all got on this phone call and uh, discussed the fact that a bunch of us had been working uh, and doing a, a bunch of information security uh, independent jobs, uh, whether we were full-time employee, uh, full-time employed or not. Um, uh, so m- myself and Jimmy Alderson had a small business together. Uh, Jay Beal had JJ Bicek that Ed Scotus uh, would sometimes work with. Uh, and Eric Cole had his own uh, business stuff, uh, as well as, uh, David Rhodes and Bob Hillary also, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Hawk. And, uh, we all had discussed the fact that, uh, individually, we could bring in certain sized gigs and do a certain amount of impact, but that as a collective group, we could do much larger engagements, and not, not necessarily dollar-wise, but impact-wise. We could actually do the kind of gigs that we really wanted to do, uh, to actually have some sort of impact on the direction of the industry, uh, the direction of certain technologies, and otherwise. Uh, and uh, things that we really couldn't get until we were a large enough bonafide company with, with enough clout behind us uh, and, and that's really what led us to, to starting Guardians I uh, was the catalyst of that group uh, you know, in terms of getting everybody together um, most of us were all doing our onesie twosies or, 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 or smaller engagements in the kind of ten dollars to $20,000 range in terms of prices and that kind of thing and um, we we decided we decided to get together and form a company. Uh, David Rhodes decided to continue on with his own very successful practice. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, and the rest of us uh, kind of tossed uh, uh, our hats uh, in a ring and uh, and um, went in it together, uh, which was uh, really really cool.
0: And here you are, and of course you're you're still there. Um, so tell me this: you know, one of the things I, I noted when you know I had my my first interview. Uh, with the team at the time and this was a few years ago now. Uh, you told me right off the bat that this was really kind of a family type thing. And you know everyone was treated as family and and I think that's one of those things that everybody says. I, I don't I've not had a job interview where somebody hasn't said that in some degree, but in Guardians is the only place I've ever worked where I really after working there believed it like it was really the case and and it was very much like a family and and, you know i ended up leaving after a little while to pursue some other things but like it stuck with me like the family experience that was in guardians and and there's good and bad parts with it being a family but but mostly good and you know was that something you sought out when you when you created the company was that something you sought out to create an environment like that or did it just kind of evolve naturally
1: i i think kind of both to a certain degree and let let me clarify uh, you know, when we started the company, we we didn't really envision having employees. Quite frankly, we you know we were a group of friends that figured that the sum of each other would be kind of greater than the individual, uh, and, uh, and and we should kind of join forces. And right off the bat, our current client needs quickly exceeded our capabilities or our capacity, I should say, to, to do them. Uh, and uh, so we hired Tom Liston uh and uh and kind of the rest was history. Uh the um I was just just speaking with Tom Muskin earlier today. Uh the uh and and you know I, I think that in part um our our initial management style was that we had no management style. We uh, none of us have formal business training. Um we when we hired people initially especially we hired people with a tremendous amount of experience in, in, in information security. And we hired people that didn't necessarily need a lot of hand-holding to kind of hit the ground running. And we wanted to do this because we really didn't have the desire or bandwidth uh, to go through and, you know, do all that hand-holding and bringing people up. Uh, we, we've We've learned over time that some of our best decisions are the ones that we didn't make kind of happened. Um, And also, you know, it's been interesting that most of our consultants were not consultants before they came to our company. They may have been internal consultants within a group organization, uh, but they weren't necessarily traveling consultants or road warriors or or otherwise. Uh, So it's been a, a fascinating journey that way.
0: Yeah. You know, and one of the things you mentioned, you know, managerial style. And one of the things I remember distinctly from my time was I I don't remember a single time where I was ever told by someone who was above me. And I was a low man on the totem pole for most of my time there. I was never told by somebody above me do this or, or i'm going to work this out for you in this way everything was kind of worked out like collectively as a company everybody was in pretty much on every decision and and it was this really like, like i said that whole family aspect of, of like if there's a problem let's all get together and work it out and that's just how it's going to be there's no tell people telling you you're going to do this or you're going to do this and i, I just thought that was the coolest thing and a very rare thing uh really in any company but let alone in an information security company
1: well with that you know we- we appreciate it, and, 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 and you're still family, uh, and, and I hope you know that. Well, I appreciate the that. the, the uh, yeah, and, and you know we we, uh, we just hi- we just hired a, a new consultant. Uh, you know, he starts in about three and a half, four weeks or so. Uh, I, I won't make that announcement just yet in terms of names, uh, but uh, but you know that was a very important thing for for both us and and, and for him. You know, we when you're bringing somebody new into a, into a small family. Um, You know, you got to make sure that uh, the personalities will fit and, you know, that the skill sets will kind of enhance each other. and, And more than anything, it's the passion and the enthusiasm and the desire to learn and share that knowledge with others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's great. Well, tell me a little bit. I know we're we're getting close to wrapping up here, and I'd love to hear from you. Kind of, you know, you've had this long distinguished career, and certainly it's it's not over. You've got a lot of story left to write, but but you've had this long distinguished career teaching people, and and I venture to say there's probably very few people in information security, especially those who are doing IDS, who can't in some way trace their kind of knowledge tree back to you in some way. So you know, I'd like I'd love to hear from you at least a little bit on, on maybe how you've seen education and in information security evolve and, and even more so kind of where you see it going, you know, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What is, what is an ideal state maybe look like to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, such a kind of multifaceted, uh, subject, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I've seen a lot of things that, that have worked and a lot of things that haven't worked, you know, for me, uh, my teaching style as you and, and, and many people know, you know, uh, besides being slightly irreverent uh, and, and so forth. I believe that we learn through doing. Um, I, I can be exposed to the concepts uh, through, you know, slides and lecture and audio and, and, and other things. But, you know, un- until my fingers touch the keyboards and I have to, you know, dissect packets or analyze something or, you know, fire packets off, I'm not actually learning. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but the... Uh, I saw something last year, uh, that completely blew my mind from a learning potential. Uh, so, you know, it was a customized version, uh, you know, of a, uh, of a learning platform. And, uh, essentially, uh, this, this particular platform, from my understanding, they have a cloud version uh, and which is not as expensive, and they have a kind of bespoke in-house uh, massive server setup that's about <coughs> maybe about a hundred thousand uh, dollars. The uh, so 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 quite expensive that way. But what it what it allowed people to do uh, from a teaching perspective is to have uh, your slide environment uh, to have within that slide environment. Uh, the ability to to bring up your labs. The labs have uh, strings of virtual machines. These virtual machines have the complete virtual machine environment uh, and it is unique to that student. Uh, So if you have 50 students in in the room or taking that course, you have 50 virtual machine environments uh, that are unique. Uh, So you no longer have to worry about, uh, you know, teaching people man-in-the-middle attacks or other things and actually doing them uh, because the only network it's gonna screw up is your own and you can reset it in 20 seconds. Uh, on top of the labs, uh, you know, you'd have a ribbon at the top which had kind of the lab question, for instance. Uh, you had the ability to bring up tips uh, for the lab. You had the ability to, to bring up video of the instructor walking through the lab. Uh, and uh, the ability to go through and check your answers you know, uh, with the lab and so forth. So when I saw that, it, it took uh, an enormous amount of effort. Uh, you know, Josh Wright, uh, to give him credit, uh, was the person I saw who converted his classroom environment into the system, uh, put hundreds and hundreds of hours into, into creating that, but hands down, for me, it was the best environment I've seen um, to this day. Uh, you know, I, I love the idea of going towards Ender's Game, uh, you know, where we're, you know, uh, students don't even know that they're actually practicing because they're playing a game. Uh, the, uh, but, you know, until we get there, I, I think that the more we can use technology to, to support that learning environment... Um, I looked at it from my class's perspective and, you know, I could add, for instance, terabytes of traffic uh, in packet captures that could be replaying on those individual networks on a constant basis uh, for them to be monitoring. Um, You know, endless possibilities there uh, for creating really cool lab environments. So that's the most exciting thing that I've seen lately. I think that you know, there's still a massive place for kind of your, your lecture classroom style environment. Uh, I think that those are probably more apt for certain learning styles and maybe even certain subjects, more fundamental subjects or otherwise.
0: So it's almost like in an ideal world, the content dictates to some degree, how it's learned, because certain things will scale in that environment and some won't, and to some degrees, the person's learning style dictates. So it's kind of hoping that the stars align in terms of how the content's delivered and what it's suited towards and the learning style of the person who desires to perceive the knowledge.
1: Correct. And, and, the, and the quality of the content and production is going to be hugely important um, regardless of where you are. Right? So you know, I, I think one of the reasons why SANS has – has lasted and persisted so well, you know, is that, you know, the content is pretty good. Uh, the delivery is pretty good. Uh, you know, and, 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 I say pretty good in some cases, the content and the delivery is fantastic. And in some cases, the, the content and delivery is subpar, uh, you know, as with any organization. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I think because they have a good quality, uh, you know, in terms of their average, good quality is good, uh, and their average delivery is is good. Um, it's a good experience. Um, but if you take away the content, if the content is subpar, or if you take away the delivery and that's subpar, then I don't think it matters if it's live or or or, or not live, you know, virtual or otherwise, that it won't last. Right. And, and an example of that my son and I we homeschool our son and we are taking a class together through Khan Academy uh, which is a great uh, organization uh, and uh, but the class is is on storytelling and it's produced by Pixar uh, and oh my goodness gracious me it is it is a phenomenal learning experience because first of all it's produced by Pixar so, uh, yeah, definitely highly recommend you checking it out. Um, just because I, it it's, it it really takes it to the next level of of kind of integrating kind of video storytelling uh, with activities and, and and these types of things. Wow,
0: yeah, definitely gonna take check that out. That's that's amazing, and I'll I'll make sure to grab a link to that and share with some others as well. That's cool.
1: Well, well, listen, I,
0: I know we got to get get you out of here. You got some things to do, but let me ask you the last question. This is the last question I kind of ask everybody. You know, what do you tell a person who wants to get in, into information security? You know, Whether they're new and they're maybe they're choosing where to go to college or they're getting out of college and looking for a job, maybe they're older in their career and they're looking to change careers into information security. What do you tell folks like that? How do they get into the field? What's the best thing to learn or how to learn it? What's your general thoughts there?
1: Well, I, I think first you, you have to chart your objectives and what you want. Uh, and, and what I really mean by that is, you know, try to look a little bit further down the road. Uh, you know, if, if you don't want to be a traveling consultant, you know, you, you probably don't want to do forensics, uh, you know, for a living, uh, you know, or, or if you don't want to do, uh, if you don't want to look at the horrible things that humans can do, you don't want to do forensics. Uh, you know, if, if you're uh, maybe a little bit softer on the technology side uh, and don't have that passion for, uh, you know, programming and, and, and bits and bytes, uh, you know, consider, uh, you know, policy and, and shaping and guiding and managing the information security side. Uh, so I, I, I think first kind of deciding kind of the, the approach that you want to take, you know, on the, on, in technology um, is definitely important. The second thing, you know, if you decide to, that, that you want to pursue kind of information security and you want to uh, pursue it as a, as a practice, I think the, the the first two things that I would do is I would go out to honeynet.org. Uh, I would download uh, the Honeynet challenges of yore. Uh, these are the old scan of the month challenges plus the new challenges that they have up there uh, so that you can start to look at what compromises look like. Uh, then uh, I would uh, explore setting up a honeypot at home on a research network, uh, and, uh, and I would get compromised. I would get hacked. Uh, it's something personal. Somebody comes into your home and attacks you, essentially. Uh, hopefully, only virtually on, uh, you know, on, on a honeypot. Uh, and uh, but it, because it's personal, it will lead you towards that path of discovery, uh, of going through figuring out that hack. Uh, you know, trying to trace it back, trying to understand it, uh, and uh, and then you have skin in the game. And then you can decide if you want to, you know, kind of pursue. Attacking, uh, so you know. By that mean by means, by that I mean, a consultant. Uh, you know, where where you get to hack legally, uh, <laughs> essentially. Uh, you know, or or you know, apply the, you know the great arts uh, of defense and, and analysis, uh, and uh, and stay on the blue side.
0: Wonderful. Fantastic advice. Well, listen, Mike, as always, I appreciate you. I'm, I'm happy for, for your continued success, and I hope now that you're, you know, you're kind of looking at, at doing some other things. Obviously, you are recently retired from SANS, and I know whatever is next for you is going to be just fantastic. So I appreciate you. I appreciate all the, the work you've done for, for our industry and all the support you've given me personally, and, and thanks again for your
1: time, sir. One last thing. Yes, sir. Keep, you, keep, your, keep your ears open for the Art of War podcast. That's coming soon. Uh, and uh, eyes open uh, for a free weekly briefing uh, that uh, Guardians has been providing to our clients that we're going to be providing uh, to the community. So I love check it. That out. Thank, thank you, thank sir. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.
0: Wow, that was awesome. Mike's such a great guy. He has such an awesome story and he's doing great things in the community. I hope you really got something out of that. Uh, Mike's been one of those guys who's really and truly enriched my life and I hope you got a glimpse of that uh, here today. So with that said, that's really going to do it for us uh, here on the fourth episode of the Source Code Podcast. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Uh, Remember, if you like what Mike had to say, thank him for his time at Mike underscore poor on Twitter. I'm always glad to hear your feedback, too, at ChrisSanders88 on Twitter. Of course, if you have ideas for guests, we're going to be filming uh, or recording, I guess I should say, the second season uh, here in maybe about a couple of months. So uh, let me know your ideas. Maybe you yourself are interested. You have an interesting story that you think would help people uh, in the field. I'd love to, uh, to talk to you, spend a little bit of time uh, digging into your background. It's uh, it's fun for me, and hopefully it'll be fun for, uh, for you as well. Uh, until next time, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys. Thanks y'all.